Hello, everyone. It's great to be here. Um, and what an act that we have to follow. I obviously wore the wrong jacket today, uh, but hopefully you'll forgive me. Uh, I'm Carolyn Abramo. I'm the CEO and founder of PANA, low-carbon economy investments based here in New York City. I'm so thrilled that we get to have this event in New York City. And I really thank the whole SALT team for giving us this opportunity to talk about what we think is the best investment opportunity of our lifetimes, besides Bitcoin, of course. Uh, and so I would love to, to bring you in and meet the panel. Um, we're going to talk about a lot of what I call macro ideas um, it, about this space. Pana, our firm, is dedicated to what we, we call growth equity. So we're really bridging some of the breakthrough technologies that have been developed to reduce carbon in all our major supply chains, so all of our real asset supply chains getting them to the stage where they could be deployed into large-scale infrastructure. And that's really the, the topic, is really infrastructure. And my esteemed colleagues will talk about how, from their perspective, as both asset managers and investors, they're actually doing that. They're actually making investing, making investing decisions and really bridging sometimes what the gaps are between the way government supports some of these technologies and these infrastructure investments, um, the role of corporations, um, as, and the private sector. So we'll, we'll talk a lot about all of those. Um, and so without further ado, I want to introduce my panel. So each of them is going to tell you a little bit about their role and something fun about them. So Petra, if you can start. Thank you, Caroline. It's a pleasure to be here. Good afternoon. I'm Petya Nikolova, uh, and I lead the infrastructure asset class with New York City Retirement Systems. New York City Retirement Systems uh, are the fourth largest pension plan in the US, uh, currently with total AOM over 260 billion. We invest across a variety of private markets, uh, but for the purposes of this panel, um, the infrastructure uh, would be the most relevant one. Um, infrastructure we started around nine years ago, um, and we continue to invest uh, very actively um, across different sectors. And uh, as we will discuss later on, um, a lot is going on um, in the sustainability space. Thanks, Petra. Maureen? Hi, I am Maureen O'Toole, and pleased to be here in, not in Las Vegas, I will admit. Um, this is always a great conference. I started attending years ago on the hedge fund side. I spent all of my career in the alternative investment world. Two years ago, I joined Actis. We are an impact and private capital manager based in London. What I'm excited about is to tell you more about what we do at Actis and to raise the level of awareness around what is achievable, both in terms of getting really good market rates of return and in terms of taking a look at what the leave-behind effect of your investments are on the ground. Um, I was thrilled to get to Actis because I had been hearing about impact investing. We hear all these terms, ESG, sustainable investing, and um, Actis has a 70-year-plus history in this area because they were originating within a development finance institution in the, in the UK, actually. Uh, they started a private capital investment arm within a DFI to show that market rates of return can be made, exits can be made in developing markets. And so I think that will be the angle that I will take today. We did not start as a carbon neutral or a carbon type of an investment arm. 
we started to bring power to people who don't have power. When we started, there were nearly two billion people in the world that didn't have access to electricity. Today, there's approximately one billion. Great tailwinds, great supply demand inefficiency, and a great way to make market returns um, for, your, for our clients. Great, so hi everyone, I'm Peter Hulebergs. I'm with Tomasic, the Singapore-based investment firm. Uh, I'm in the New York office. I lead our energy and environment practice for the Americas. So that includes um, clean energy, water, waste, really energy transition and circular economy focused thematics, um, both private and public sector investments. And um, yeah, been with the firm for eight years, spent year, eight years prior to that also in the energy sector um, and uh, have you know, been, been thrilled to be part of a firm that's been transitioning and helping to uh, also help industry transition as we look at decarbonization as a, a massive investment opportunity, which simply makes sense. And I think, as, as Maureen had said, I think we're, we're also um, very much driven by that, that huge opportunity and um, excited to share a little bit more about it today. So thanks. So it's great. Well, I didn't hear any fun facts, so we're going to get back to that. Cause they, and you're not going to, you're not eluding me. Um, so Petra, just starting with you, just wondering how the firm got comfortable with this, uh, this specific uh, investment area and the transition to a low carbon economy and how your investments look versus your, what was currently in your portfolio and maybe what's still in your portfolio and how you're thinking potentially of transitioning all of it to a low carbon economy. Yeah, absolutely. And um, I'll start with a little bit of a bigger picture um, above infrastructure. So what, what do we do as, as an organization at the plan level? Um, what we have done is um, we have divested a few of our boards from fossil fuels, but we also started investing. And that is the more interesting piece. Um, we have tripled uh, our investments in sustainability over the last three years, uh, again, at the plan level. For infrastructure specifically, the dynamics has been extremely interesting, and that's to the point that both Maureen and Peter made, which is that without necessarily focusing from the very beginning on sustainability in the infrastructure portfolio, as we as an investor could invest across a variety of asset classes, more traditional ones like transportation or the newer ones like digital infrastructure. And yet, the, we invest primarily through funds. So where the opportunity has been, it has been renewables and sustainability. So our portfolio has very organically grown uh, in renewables and they represent currently the largest portion of our investments. And if we add other sustainability themes like energy efficiency um, or battery storage, um, we, it, it would be even larger uh, portion of the pie. And I think the key uh, here, Caroline, to your point about how did you get comfortable, it's based on returns. There, there are money to be made there. And um, we, we go through a very um, thorough process of due diligence to understand exactly the risk and return profile of these investments. Um, and um, so far, it, it, it has been uh, a great opportunity. Yeah, that's really helpful, Petra, and, and to know that 
with solar and wind that we're on a trajectory of it's been started that 20 years in, in the making, you know, in terms of, of achieving the right level on the technologies and de-risking them so that now they, they're considered basic in infrastructure. Um, Maureen, in terms of your, uh, in terms of Actus and how you've taken advantage of, let's say, the renewable sector, maybe you can talk about, you know, your focus and, you know, and where it is, you know, and, we, and we'll go back to you, Katya, in terms of just geographies, like being in New York City, are you focused only on, you know, on the U.S. or is, or is it a global mandate? But Maureen, maybe you could talk about your portfolio. Right. So as I said, we're, we're a power generation company or the, the area I'm going to talk about. We do other things. We do digital and data center. But for the sake of today, we'll talk about the power generation. We, as I said, we didn't start doing renewables because they weren't affordable. So what's so important and I think so exciting for investing right now is we just, we're raising a fund right now, it's done. Um, and this vintage year of ours is going to, I think, be one of the most transformative. When we started our first fund 15 years ago, we were doing thermal. We were studying wind and solar. The minute they got affordable, the minute that their cost per kilowatt hour dipped below that of, of coal, which is just sort of the base case, we were able to pivot very quickly. What's so exciting today, and we'll touch on it, I hope, is the new work that's being done in the renewables that will propel us for tomorrow. And that's going to be primarily in battery and storage and perhaps hydrogen as storage. What we do right now, as I said, is wind and solar, because the minute that that price became affordable, when you have input that costs zero, sun costs zero, wind costs zero, that is the most affordable way for an emerging market to bring power to its people. So today we build large-scale solar and wind plants. We have offices in 17 markets around the world. We invest broadly throughout Latin America, Africa, India, and Southeast Asia. We do nothing in the developed markets because of our history of being part of that, that DFI that focused primarily on the emerging markets. And in so doing, we keep track of how much carbon are we reducing out of the atmosphere uh, many of the places that we, in fact, does anybody know how much of the world's power is still generated by coal? 30%. Go to a country like India. Almost 90% of electricity in India comes from coal generation. So the, I go back to when you're an investor, you should be looking where that's that supply-demand imbalance and how can I take advantage of this huge transition and transformation that is going to occur. Yes, we will have infrastructure investment in the United States. And yes, we will continue to build renewable power. But the biggest opportunity from a global carbon impact and from a life impact is bringing electricity for the first time to people or bringing industrial electricity so that you can actually have urbanization and improvement of lives and taking that carbon out of the world's atmosphere because it is a world measuring problem. Uh, we have just, I'll give you one more stat, as we measure it, and metrics are important, greenwashing, impact washing, all of those things are very real. So we keep track and we compare, if this hadn't happened, if we hadn't opened a, a move from coal to natural gas, what would the carbon emission have been? And we have, since our inception, taken 15.7 million tons of carbon out of the atmosphere. That's just us. We're only a $16 billion firm. So it just shows you the power of what can be done in renewables, where one trillion has been invested over the next uh, last 10 years in renewables, and the estimate is we need 20 trillion 
to meet that demand and need, especially in the demographically driven emerging markets over the next few years. And continuing with that, thanks, Maureen. And Peter, since, since Tomasic is based in Singapore, um, however, global reach, and to some of Maureen's comments about the amount of carbon that just Actis has been able to reduce over their time in wind and solar, maybe you could talk about some of the other areas that you're looking at and maybe the entire, let's say, carbon balance that we are trying to reduce. So how much carbon are we really talking about? And maybe, you know, aligning with a lot of folks have heard you know, about the Paris Accord goals of 2050 and, and aligning with those goals, which are the subsequent result would be to not raise surface temperatures by 1.5 degrees. So we'll get into that later, but, you know, but Peter, maybe talk about some yeah, of the areas of sure. focus. No, that, that, and that's, entire, that's uh, hugely in focus for us. I think um, I, I, I would start by saying, though, as well, that the clean, Cheap, clean power is certainly the fundamental building block which everything else has to, has to stem from. But as we look beyond that, we look at uh, really industry, transportation, and materials as kind of the, 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 the main uh, other areas where I spend my time. And in industry, it's really the non-electric um, emissions, so heat or process emissions that do present a, a fairly low-hanging fruit opportunity as well to, to decarbonize. And, and also a um, increasingly an economic one. I think you've got a sort of trifecta of um, policy as well as you know, the actual technologies are starting to mature to a point where, where they make sense and they've been de-risked, and uh, as well as then the, the fundamental building block that I started with, which is the, the clean power. So I think like that, those three together are unleashing business models that uh, are ready to scale, and in many cases, uh, in, in our view, uh, the challenge is, um, is largely a business, business model and execution challenge. So really um, pursuing that and supporting the management teams uh, that, are, that are looking to seize that opportunity is what we feel passionate about. And um, you know, also working together with other, other investors uh, and, and, and really kind of trying to, trying to, get, to um, get to the right answer, which is, as, as Caroline mentioned, sort of the, really the, the overall climate objective that, that, is, that is at this point relatively well known and understood, but it's extremely challenging to achieve. So we'll take um, you know, concerted effort and a coordinated effort to, to be successful around. So um, I th you know, the industrial piece is an area that I spend a lot of time. Transportation and materials are, are also, uh, you know, of interest. I think the, the risk profiles change in each of these areas. Materials is a space where I think it's intriguing that there's much less need for policy than, uh, than we're seeing in, in perhaps the, the energy or industrial decarbonization space. There's huge pull from corporates that are willing to co-develop with, with technology companies and, and really provide that line of sight to fairly long-dated offtake at scale for some of these um, you know, facilities that are get built out, which then gives investors the comfort to, to underwrite and, and really get these breakthrough technologies off the ground. Yeah, that, thank you for bringing that up. So in terms of like in, in light of not having incentives, so because a lot of people will get nervous about this space by saying, well, if there are government incentives like we started with wind and solar, I'm not comfortable with that. The governments could change those. You know, that's not an investment risk that I'm willing to take. However, when we look at some of these other areas that we're looking to decarbonize, which are the kind of the big ones that, you know, are the most carbon emitting, we see that companies that have good operating margins they and that they can exist incentive-free. So they can have 
20, 30, 40%, 50% operating margins outside of an incentive scheme. So, and that's, I think, you know, what Peter is referring to. And maybe I'll get him to, to he can talk a little bit more specifically about, you know, a few, a few of those or at least one of those examples, like some of the industries that we're trying to decarbonize, like cement, steel, glass manufacturing. These are the big areas where there is big carbon emissions. So I don't know if, it can, if you can speak a little bit more about maybe a technology yeah. or a group that you've seen and how that's playing out. No, uh, that question sort of touches on an aspect that I think is important to highlight in this panel, which is really it's a stock and flow example, right? So we have this huge capital stock that's out there and is really um, in order to um, move the needle quickly enough. I think looking at the flow of, of new solar and new EVs and all that is is hugely important and will will be an uh, attractive investment opportunity. I think there's a second piece, which is really looking at the existing stock and finding the technologies that can be, you know, retrofitted or or cleverly integrated into those um, those whether it's you know factories or other types of infrastructure, really smartening things up, uh, doing carbon capture. So I think what uh, Caroline was was encouraging me to speak about is the carbon capture piece, which is uh, you know clearly can be done directly from air or from point source um, at industrial uh, sources of emission, uh, which is the, the latter part is an area that I, I spent quite a lot of time on, and I'm uh, excited to 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 really um, you know be digging into that space because it's it's very multifaceted. I think capturing the carbon is, is one part of it. So um, going up to being able to offer um, a cement uh, company or a, a company, uh, industrial gases business that's got a, a hydrogen manufacturing facility, offering them as a service the ability to, without messing with the, um, the process that's there, the industrial process that's clearly very delicate, to retrofit onto that carbon capture technology that is in and of itself a viable um, you know, economic proposition for the investors putting up the capital. Uh, we are very close to that really breaking through and I think uh, we're working hard to, to really uh, make that into a reality because I think at that point you'll unleash um, you know, a ton of capital that, that's ready to be deployed into that space. Yeah, and for, I guess just to scale things, when we talk about early days solar and wind being really expensive, Maureen's talking about and how we've de-risked it. Similarly with this carbon capture technology, you know, most of it from like direct air capture, which literally is taking carbon out of the air, we're talking about, you know, $200, $250 a ton that would make that economic. However, one of the opportunities that Peter's working on, I'm working on too, in the term, terms of point source capture, could actually be feasible and profitable at, at $50 or $70 a ton. And that's actually directly relates to, in the US, some of the, the legislation that's, that's underway. Um, not just under Biden, but you know, in, in terms of what's been happening with the with some tax credits, with the 45Q tax credit, which currently gives $50 a ton credit to people that develop some of this technology. So, just for an example and a level setting, you know, and, and in terms of how these things are are becoming very economic um, and profitable. So, um, so there's definitely now um, a de-risking piece that's happening. Um, Petya. How would it be, so for, for, for you and, and the plan, how would it be to start thinking about some of these, these new technologies? Like kind of what's the process, you know, how do you, like when you, when you put against them all against each other in terms of like risk return, like how will you start to think about some of these newer areas? Yeah, it, it's an interesting question um, because 
on the infrastructure side, um, we like a lot of the technology risk being taken um, out of, of the deals. Um, the, the role of infrastructure in our portfolio is capital preservation, uh, stable and predictable cash flow. So, uh, you know, it, it, it's, it's an interesting balance. And, and at the end of the day, it's a question of um, how, how it is de-risked. So if, if there is another party that takes this risk, that, that possibly um, makes the deal uh, more appealing from our perspective um, on infrastructure. Um, we also collaborate with our private equity team so that we understand the themes um, and growth equity. Uh, we don't do venture, uh, but we, we collaborate with them just to uh, get an understanding of how the space looks like today and where it's going uh, tomorrow, what the impacts might be um, on, on our um, infrastructure uh, deals um, going forward. Um, so um, th that's how we're thinking about it. It's, um, it it's not a very well-defined process. It it's just something that we, we try to look through and think about as, as, as we see um, new technologies emerging. Yeah, I think another part of that, and that's great that you mentioned just in terms of that de-risking piece of the kind of in these, these opportunities, the, the off-take agreements. So when you have when power, if you can sell your power forward for 20 years, 30 years, it becomes a stability of cash flows, which, you know, for then an investment makes it much more palatable where, and if government's not there, then who's going to step into that? And what we've seen, and I think the whole panel scene, corporations are stepping into that now because there's a real desire from corporations corporations as they put out their carbon reduction goals for 2040, 2050, you know, to actually now they turn around and say, well, how am I going to actually do this? How am I going to look through my supply chains, look to my head of sustainability and, you know, and carbon, do this? <laughs> and so there's basically, you know, a lot of investment that's going to happen. Um, and then if they will then purchase whatever materials that, that would be sustainable or, or carbon reducing um, in a longer term fashion and even at a premium to the existing products that are out there, so what we call a green premium, that can stabilize these transactions. And, and that's by and large what we're seeing um, with a lot of this and where it can get around some of this technology risk that Petya is talking about. And, and I would say, and, um, you know, Maureen, I don't know what your experience is. I mean, you have tons over the years. You know, just this concept of technology risk. I mean, and how in infrastructure, this is not something yeah. you can. You'll go to you know seven, eight, nine, you know, fifty managers, and they'll say in infrastructure, we don't do technology risk. We, if we want to invest in this this op, this company, they have to have the first four projects done, and they have to be EBITDA positive, and all, all that kind of stuff. And maybe you can address some of that um, a little bit more. But you know, that's just. Please, take it from me. Yeah. Okay, so a couple of things there, and I, I had a couple of thoughts while Petio was talking too, and let me, let me pull a few things together. Um, you mentioned power purchase agreements. So I think the important thing for those of you who may don't, not know in the audience is that you can get 20, 30-year agreements, primarily from governments, as to what they're going to pay you for electricity. There are publicly run auctions. These are all very transparent. They're online. I mean, one of the things that we get, of course, is, oh, aren't all emerging markets corrupt? Well, okay, I live very close to New Jersey. 
Um, sorry to anybody who does, but like, yes, there's ways of doing business around the world. These are publicly available auctions. You see exactly to the penny who won a PPA. You have that long-term cash flow, which enables you then to run your investment models and know exactly how you're going to build something and have this profitable cash flow stream. My firm is run by a bunch of engineers. Um, I'm one of the few finance people, so it's a bunch of engineers. So they build stuff in complex markets, and they know how to do that. The new technology, and I think the thing that, that becomes very important, and again, I'm only speaking for emerging markets, we are profitable without government subsidies. Now, what we do have in our markets, though, is the very critical partnership of the world development money. So think of the World Bank. Think of the Commonwealth Development Corp, um, CDC out of London. Think of the, the world that is trying to channel low-cost loans to emerging markets to improve the quality of life writ large. And power generation is one of those. So what you have is a carrot and a stick approach. And, and we mentioned government, we mentioned corporate, and the importance of aligning all of these to get it right. And, and again, I go back to we are at a glorious moment in time where I think there's going to be so much dynamic happening. Uh, we don't invent things in emerging markets. We need them to be invented and, and tested out here, and then we take them there. But we right now are very excited about um, the nudge that certainly the Paris Accord and the upcoming COP26, which you're all familiar with, is going to be happening in the first week of November. And these are all regulations that will push and continue to push towards the technologies and the broad implementation that will help the, the profit-seeking money to go afterwards. Uh, so I, I point to India. Their, their renewables goal has gone up, I think it's like 400 and 440 gigawatts or something by 2030. So you have all these countries now putting 2050, 2030 uh, goals out there. And, and the amount of wind turbines, the amount of solar panels, the amount of, of cobalt, lithium that's needed to get there is almost un, ins, insatiable. Uh, and you, you, you know, there is a supply-demand problem even with that, but the, the opportunity set is there. And what we are very strongly looking at is, uh, we do solar and wind, fine, we're there. Um, two things to let you know. Wind blows harder, sun shines brighter south of the equator. So you put a wind turbine in Germany, and you put one in Brazil, it is going to be three times more efficient and effective in Brazil. So it's a slam dunk that renewables in certain areas, and that's what we're specializing in, right? You're not going to go put solar in, in some place that rains a lot. You, you have to put it in the right place in our markets. But it can be so much more productive. And with that carrot out there of low-cost loans to a government to go ahead and build out their green infrastructure because of that zero-cost input to work on battery need 24-7. You know, you, you can't have a hospital running just when the sun is out or the wind is blowing. So we do use natural gas as a transition fuel, which I think is a very fascinating topic as well, coming up to COP. Um, and, and you have that ability to really do both. So I guess the, the carrot and the stick thing in our markets is working exceptionally well. And the minute that any of that other technology gets affordable, uh, the opportunity to implement on a broad scale is, is phenomenal. That's terrific, and that means I'm going to, Peter, you know where I'm going. So that, in terms of some other areas um, of, for baseload power generation that are carbon reducing and maybe don't have the regulatory support that 
wind and solar already have, so things like geothermal. Um, kind of how is that progressing as one topic? And then the second topic I want to bring up with you is some of the other big carbon-emitting uh, sectors like uh, plastics. Um, and then the insatiable, as Maureen said about insatiable demand for certain things, insatiable demand from consumers for sustainable packaged goods, for alternate proteins. So just to, you know, to tie into some of the themes that even we've heard at the conference um, yesterday, was a great panel on alternative proteins, which is really cool. But Peter, what do you, what do you, what are you seeing? Yeah, no, I think, and, and then uh, queuing off the, the comments that were just made, I think, there's sort of three driving factors that I, I believe are um, you know, going to generate or are generating huge investment opportunities. It's really the, this decarbonization and then the resource efficiency as well as the resilience of some of these solutions. I think we look for things that tick all those three boxes and I think those are applicable across emerging markets as well as developed markets. And being able to really you know, look on a global basis, I think, helps spot the right solutions and then also getting them to the, um, to, to the right applications. Uh, and, and one of those solutions where I think there's a, a, a lot of good lateral thought that's been applied and is being applied uh, currently is, uh, is geothermal. So it's really um, taking a lot of the innovation that was seen in the shale industry over the past 10, 15 years and translating that across to a sector which, which had seen you know, less innovation uh, than, than maybe perhaps or certainly less, less, less uh, well-known innovation that, that we've seen in solar or wind, so really taking horizontal drilling and, and the, the, the cost declines in the, in the oil and gas industry uh, you know, have basically brought into the money a, a lot of applications in geothermal that, that were previously just not economic. So again, that's, that's this, things are entering this, this interesting window, and if you can get geothermal to work, um, you know, it is baseload clean power, which is ultimately then obviates or, or complements the, either obviates the need for a battery or complements uh, solar and wind, which is intermittent, um, and, and, and really gets us to that, you know, the, 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 the last, you know, 20, 30% of the grid that has to be decarbonized that's most challenging. So, so we believe that that is a fascinating area that's complementary to the, the whole suite of, of solutions that's out there. Um, and spending a, a lot of time on that space. And um, in terms of the, the other industries around, whether it's plastics or, or, or more of the kind of uh, agri-food uh, domain, that's an area we spend a lot of time as well. Uh, I'll, I'll speak specifically to the, the plastic space where there are uh, effectively um, you know, bioplastics, whether they're bio-based or biodegradable. Um, if we look at the life cycle of those products, there's huge optionality and, and, and opportunities that's embedded in, in, in some of the attributes there. We can think of um, an ecosystem where, uh, from a food court, let's say, all the, all the cutlery and the plates and things are made of biodegradable materials, so then things all get directed into, um, into the organic stream and, and really thinking about the ecosystem that sort of how do we solve this um, as a society, really, and that, that takes a lot of convening power a lot of different actors that, that need to come together, and, uh, and we're proud to, to play a small part in, in bringing those together and supporting the, the companies that are looking to really move the needle. Yeah, that's thank you. It's super helpful, and you know, there's, there's these 
you know, we're talking a lot about carbon reduction, but it's really about environmental uh, sustainability and like the E of the ESG, which we've talked uh, quite a bit about this conference, and we won't even get a chance to talk much about the S and the G, but that's all something that is in part of our investment processes, which is, which is kind of interesting um, to note. Um, talking about just this, well, getting back to the whole like geography and the nature of the, where these investments are, Petio, in terms of your portfolio, where do you look? Will you invest? Um, is it only in U.S., North America, or is it outside? So we invest globally, um, and we don't have any restrictions on how much we need to invest in a certain geography. Uh, naturally, we um, try to have a balanced portfolio, uh, which talking about risks also exposes us to different risks and re different opportunity set as well. Um, and um, historically, um, the city of, of New York or New York City retirement systems um, have not invested in emerging, emerging markets on the private side. Uh, but with infrastructure, um, given the opportunity set there, and, and Maureen um, very uh, well described that opportunity set, um, we actually were able to invest in emerging markets um, in a strategy um, that is primarily um, focused on energy transition and, and renewables. Um, so I'm very happy to share that um, we are a global investor and we were able to invest in emerging markets as well. And just, and I, I don't know if you personally have an opinion, maybe, and Maureen and Peter, of like how we're doing around the globe. Like, where are the most opportunities? And when I say the most, it's, it's, it's really, you know, there's tons of opportunities everywhere, but, you know, how quickly are certain parts of the world, let's say Europe versus Asia versus US, you know, moving along with transition? And that can be many things. It can be, it could be the legislative part, the regulatory part. It could be you know, where corporates are located, where manufacturing is. Uh, you know, it could just be you know, the consumer sentiment. But it, you know, any, what are your, your thoughts on that, how, how it's going? Yeah, um, it's, um, it's a very nuanced question because there, there are opportunities, but also there are different returns. And in certain geographies, we see um, the returns uh, being pushed down. Um, so, um, as we think about Europe um, and the U.S., a lot of the areas in, in straightforward renewables are generating um, relatively, at least for us, um, low returns. Uh, and then you need to go up to the risk spectrum with um, taking more either construction risk and or development risk to be able to reach uh, some of the benchmark uh, targets. Um, and then when, when you look globally um, more towards emerging markets, um, uh, markets in um, Asia um, or Latin America, even Africa, uh, there is much more growth. And, and to uh, Maureen's point, um, just radiation is better. Um, I, I was smiling when you, Maureen, mentioned Germany because um, 15, 20 years ago um, in, in a prior life uh, on the direct side of things. We worked on a deal with Germany, um, a portfolio of uh, German wind farms, and, and guess what? The, the, there wasn't wind to blow, so the deal didn't go that well. Um, uh, but yeah, some, the, we, we see also the contracting structure uh, being um, different in different geographies, and again, in, in some of the emerging markets, much uh, longer term contracts uh, with um, mm -hmm. Uh, create worthy counterparties. 
That's, now I don't have to ask you about what your worst trade it was, um, <laughs> but we cover that. But because Petra probably can't say, but I can, um, just in terms of the return she's talking about. So let's say you know, large-scale wind and solar, you know, in North America, talking about you know six, seven percent type of returns. Um, you know, obviously de-risked in many ways, but that's you know, and for many plans, many investors. That's a great bogey. That's 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 terrific, but when we kind of look now, as as Petra was saying and Maureen, just in terms of emerging markets in different places, you know, different risks, but you know, increasing returns, and this is all kind of absent, you know, technology risk. So, Maureen, what yeah. what are your thoughts? So, you can still get good returns in the emerging markets, but there's so much money sloshing around now. We've got some very dumb money that is coming into our markets, which is always dangerous for two reasons. Um, these are complex markets within which to operate. So we've been doing it, as I said, with a 70-year heritage, with a 20-year real track record of doing it. When this silly money comes in, it distorts everything on the ground, the pricing, and the silly money inevitably leaves because they don't do it quite right. So that's a danger that we are seeing right now in operating assets. And we do have two lines of business. We do have operating assets, whereas I think if you were to buy an operating solar or wind farm here, you mentioned six, seven. I think on the pure operation, it's even down to like a cap rate of like three to four. In our markets, you can still get eight to 10% of a dividend flow on operating. But how we really go ahead and make the money in the 20 plus range for our clients is to take that development risk. But like I said, it's not totally greenfield because we've won the PPA before we even do shovel and ground. And then we're a bunch of engineers, so we know how to build stuff. Mm. But that still is the type of return profile you should be expecting if you take development risk. The other thing that I'll mention, because I'm sure all of you are wondering, like, what about FX risk? What about corruption? What about a coup? What about all these things that happen? Because that's what the newspaper tells you happens in emerging markets. The World Bank and numerous others has an insurance policy that you can almost insure, and we do. We are the largest purchaser of these insurance policies, in fact where you can assure and insure against multiple types of risk. FX is still one that's out there, and that, yes, is something to consider. You get a blend of dollar PPAs, local currency PPAs. There's a way to help with the portfolio construction. Other risks can be mitigated, and that's that partnership with the DFIs that matter so much. One more thing I just want to say, because we're and not... And define DFI for... Oh, sorry, Development Finance Institution. As I said, it's the World Bank's, it's the International Finance Corporation, it's USAID, it's, and every country has these. Um, it would be remiss if I didn't mention the S&G very briefly. It is very possible to go in the ground in these emerging markets and leave behind not just a great wind farm and good returns for our clients, but a very positive impact on the community. And if you go in with that lens of leaving something positive behind on day one, the added cost to implement is nil. So we build schools, we build libraries, we build water filtration plants, so we defluoridate the water so the kids don't have bowed bones. And that from day one is part of every project that we do. And that's that element that I think also has applicability as we go to other developing markets and developed markets. And I think this responsibility and this idea that that money can do both is an unstoppable wave that people now really understand. And it's that having that lens on day one and building it into your model on day one. 
Well, I love that. Well, like where a lot of, I think, you know, our best known um, climate advocates like Bill Gates started, it was, was really on a health journey, you know, which thinking about how these things tie together and thinking about the technologies, about the, the feedstocks we're using to create sustainable products around the world, a lot of them are bio-based. It, it, there's a huge inter, interconnection, which that's a whole other topic to discuss. Peter, any thoughts from, from your perspective just on geographies, like who's getting it right, who's not, like what's, what's happening? I mean, the, the, the thing that came to mind just listening to, to Maureen's answer was also just the fact that one of the investments that taught me the most was an, an African gas to power investment. This is eight years ago now, uh, where just this, the, the, it, sort of the, it shows all the good and the bad of the, 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 sort of the very centralized power grid and the chain of payments that you rely on and the guarantees that, that you need to, to be able to get comfort as an underwriter. Um, and, and really sort of taking that and then looking at the renewable space and how can we create a decentralized grid that doesn't have some of these dependencies and therefore can also hopefully scale quicker and grow quicker, I think is, um, is hugely applicable in emerging markets as well as here as we look at resiliency of our own grid and, 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 and some of the you know, wildfires and other things that are, are causing us to rethink a lot of that. So. Um, so yeah, th these are all just changes and opportunities uh, which we're, we're trying, to, trying to do our best to capture and, and, and treat as tailwinds. So just, to just, we only have about four and a half minutes left and I want to make sure we have any questions, which I can't see any of you, but if there's any questions, you'd like to throw something at me. Um, but maybe kind of last ideas about just like, you know, cutting edge stuff and again, many more topics we, you know, or, uh, that we can have about hot money, silly money, like, SPACs, I mean, all kinds of stuff, money chasing tech. But in like the next, I guess what's happened to the panel, what's happening now, um, and maybe what's ha what maybe will happen in five years from now, like what, what are your thoughts on some of these technologies that probably we hear about like nuclear and fusion and hydrogen, like just your thoughts, and maybe like how you and your institutions are thinking about things like this that could be disruptive, to some of the things that we're investing in today, or maybe not. <laughs> yeah, I, mean, I, I, I could start. I mean, it's sort of the, I, I, I think disruptive, yes, but also just complementary. The, the energy sector is so big that just one breakthrough isn't sort of going to obviate all the rest right away. So we're certainly watching what the, the, the fusion space and having making early bets, making sure we're, we're, we're sort of on top of those developments. So that's, that's an area which I think we'll be talking about uh, five, 10 years from now and continue to get closer to uh, making that a commercial reality. So. Um, I would say don't yet count out natural gas. It's the transition to the wow stuff in 10 years. And there are some places in the world that can't do renewables. I mean, I often find I, I'm in a geography class where I remind people, look at a map. Here's Bangladesh. It is swamps and islands. There's 163 million people there. You cannot put solar panels up and generate enough power. So we have to use natural gas. So what we're going to do with this current vintage product that I think is exciting is we will integrate hydrogen into some of the natural gas pipelines as possible, which will help in the reduction of the overall emissions. I think our thinking in the five, 10 year plus is we do believe someday this, this concept of the, the peaker power or the, the baseline, whatever you want to call it, the, when it's not you know, renewable, uh, we're very excited about battery. Now, that could be traditional batteries as we're looking at them now, lithium, ion, or it could be hydrogen as a storage um, as well. You know, hydrogen is not what's going to be used in our cars. Uh, we might use it in cement, 
manufacturing and steel manufacturing. But hydrogen as a battery, I think, has great possibilities. We're less excited about fusion. It, it's a little too far out for us to even envision. Um, and nuclear will, will remain what it is, um, right? And so you, good decommissioning of nuclear plants. It's the most clean energy out there. Hydrogen is interesting. Um, I was reflecting as, as we were talking about these technologies and hydrogen was so much more marginal just two years ago, um, not talked about in the infrastructure space anyway. And all of a sudden, um, now everything is about hydrogen. Um, <laughs> so I, I, I think what's fascinating is how quickly some of these technologies become more downstream, to your point about more private equity technology, growth equity, and then going downstream to infrastructure. Um, so that's what we are monitoring. Um, and I, I, I think um, there are going to be um, some investable opportunities relatively soon, definitely um, more quickly than um, I expected. Cost is definitely coming down. I mean, we yeah. monitor the cost as well. And you guys might not know, but solar, wind, the cost is down like 90% from 10 years ago. Hydrogen is on that same trajectory, and it will flip at some point. Yeah, we're seeing, I mean, and we, we, we're a growth equity. We tend to get involved earlier than, you know, than this traditional infrastructure. And as an adjacency to natural gas and the infrastructure we have in the United States, it is, it is a tremendous growth area. It's a tremendous focus. So when I think about my contribution of this ge geographic uh, discussion is that that will be one that I think will get pushed and there will be initiative from a regulatory perspective um, and just really, you know, what's in people's current portfolios. Um, so we have 14 seconds left. Any questions of the NICA CEO? Hi. Yeah, I, you know, I'll take that one okay, real quickly. Sure. Yeah. Um, yeah, activism in the space. Look, we love activists in general. They're good and they're bad, right? They are no question a large part of this impetus that we will not see going back on in terms of you name it, uh, carbon, uh, DNI, all of this stuff. The activists and I would say social media very, very important to keep the the thing going. Where I where I would say sometimes activists run afoul is let's, let's go to natural gas, okay? It is an important, we cannot just go renewable no matter how much we want to. There is simply a, a path to get there. And so sometimes I find that activists in their zeal can derail a conversation and prevent, you know, at the end of the day, this is about people and the planet. And how do we go to people in India and say you cannot have air conditioning, which will improve your quality and your health of life? because we don't think you should have it. So that's, I think, where I think, you know, activists, good, and activists can be bad, but, but a critical element to the conversation. Well, with that, thank you very much for your attention, and looking forward to speaking to you again about this. Thank you.